Well, if you would uh, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, we're going to dive right in this morning, and I'm going to read for you again Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, and uh, if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand, and John will bring one to you, um, and uh, be happy about it. He's just... He looks forward to this every every week. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to start today by asking the same question that I asked last week about Paul's statement in verse 5, the obedience of faith. Why does Paul add the word obedience to the word faith here? Why is that? Is it possible that the apostle was concerned about the believers in Rome, concerned that they understood the gospel completely and the critically important relationship between faith and obedience? Is that a possibility? Paul knew that though Roman Christians had never been taught um, by any of the apostles, except maybe those who had been at Pentecost, there had been no apostolic teaching concerning the gospel to the people or Christians in Rome. And so Paul was very concerned that they understood the gospel completely. About in 1997, um, in 96 actually, uh, we lived in a mobile home, and uh, in the s- winter of 96, you remember, we got a lot of snow, and then right after the snow, we got a lot of rain, and our mobile home couldn't handle that and got crushed, and so State Farm paid for us to build a new home, so we got a new home out of the deal, which was kind of nice, uh, but in the process of that, we saw uh, a lot of, of uh, interesting things. I had not been around construction a lot other than the finishing part of it, but uh, when you go to lay a foundation, it takes a lot longer than I think it should uh, for some reason. There's, there's tripods and, and sticks and strings and lasers and all this stuff, and, and I said, and I asked the guy, what's the big deal here? Just dig a hole, put some cement in it. And, and he goes, no, everything's got to be level and straight. And, and it's the same way with the Apostle Paul when he's talking about the gospel. He wants to make sure that the foundation is good for his discussion about what the gospel is. That's why in verses 1 through 7, he gives an overview of the entire gospel, starting with the lordship of Jesus Christ and ending with the grace of God in verses 7 and 8. And and in between there, he says this interesting phrase, which is part of the foundation, the obedience of faith. 
I want to talk to you about that today, today and what it means um, and why it's important to you and me. Okay. Um, and by the way, after last week's sermon, I talked about the Lordship of Christ in relation to our salvation. And I had a few of you come up to me afterwards and say, you know, what's the big deal? Who doesn't believe that Jesus must be Lord in order to be saved? And I said, you would be surprised. How many people actually believe that the Lordship of Christ is not particular to salvation? And that surprised some of you who talked to me. But it is, I decided to preach last week on the Lordship of Christ because Paul mentions it primarily, but also because um, there are many prominent evangelicals that believe and teach that he doesn't need to be Lord in order for you to be saved. You just need to believe some facts about him and say a prayer and you're in. That's what some prominent evangelicals teach. And so I thought it necessary to teach you what the Bible teaches. Um, although the intensity of this lordship debate has died down over the past decade, there is still a remnant of no lordship supporters out there who have not been convinced by the overwhelming tide of biblical evidence that has been supported by solid biblical teaching and exposition. Um, and so that's why, I, that's why I am spending time on this foundational issue. First of all, Jesus, Jesus is called Lord by the Apostle Paul, and then he says this interesting phrase, the obedience of faith. And so I want to talk to you about that. The first point I want to make to you is about obedience of faith and the gospel. How is obedience related to the gospel? Listen to this quote by John MacArthur. A theology that refuses to recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ for every believer is a theology that contradicts the very essence of biblical Christianity. You cannot claim to have faith in Jesus Christ and yet live in utter disobedience to the commands of Scripture. The two do not go hand in hand. Well, you, I suppose you could claim faith in Christ, but that claim would be a spurious claim, a, a faulty claim, a worthless claim, like the Apostle James goes into great length in uh, teaching in James chapter 2. Uh, but it would not be a, a legitimate claim to have faith in Christ and to be disobedient to the Word of God, or a pattern of disobedience, maybe I should say. Um, as I said last week, we are not saved by good works. I cannot emphasize that enough. A, any Bible-believing Christian would never say that you're saved by good works. But you are saved to good works. Do you see the difference? We're not saved by good works, but we're saved to good works. It says so in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, he, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples in John 15? I chose you that you might what? Bear fruit. So we need to understand what obedience has to do with the gospel. But first of all, you need to understand that it is not faith plus obedience that equals salvation. It's not faith plus obedience that means that equals salvation. What 
equals salvation is, is obedient faith. Not faith plus obedience, but obedient faith. Now, look again, and I'll explain what that means in a second, but look again closely at that phrase there that Paul mentions in verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. There are two ways that you can translate that phrase, obedience of faith. The first is obedience that comes from faith. How many here are reading from an NIV Bible right now? Your Bible should say that, doesn't it? Obedience that comes from faith. That is what the NIV, that's how the NIV translates it. Another translation, which is actually, has more support from the, from the grammar, is obedience which is faith. Obedience of faith actually can be translated obedience which is the essence of faith. That's interesting. Look at verse 8 now, down here, of uh, chapter 1. It says, First I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Do you think that the Apostle Paul would be thanking God for a spurious faith? For an inept faith? For a faith that doesn't display any obedience? Would Paul be thanking God for something like that? I really thank God that you prayed a prayer, but your lives are still full of baloney, but man, I thank God you prayed that prayer. I don't think that's in Paul's heart at all. Like, I know it's not, because you look at, at uh, chapter 16, verse 19, it says this even more plainly. Everyone has heard about your obedience. Not everyone has heard about your faith. Everyone has heard about your obedience. And he says, so, in other words, therefore, I am full of joy. Paul is thankful because their faith resulted in obedience. Obedience and the gospel go hand in hand. Next thing I want to talk to you about is obedience of faith and evangelism. How does this term or phrase, obedience of faith and evangelism, how does that connect? Think about the last time you shared the gospel with someone. Or uh, think about the way most of today's evangelism takes place. Think of how, if you watch TBN, how the gospel is presented. How does, it, how does it come across? How did you do it last time you shared the gospel with somebody? Wasn't it presented in such a way that, that uh, it was something that was going to be really good for the person? It would really make their life different? It would uh, give them purpose and meaning and joy. That's very common. And so we try to convince people or persuade them that they need this in their life because it'll make their life better. That's a common evangelism approach. But this offer is offered in such a way that the person you're talking to is at perfect liberty to refuse the offer. We're told and we believe for the most part that the, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He's not going to force his way into anybody's life. Right? That's what we're told and that's what we believe for the most part. We've all seen the picture of, the famous picture of Jesus standing at the door that's covered in ivy, knocking. Remember that picture? Please, let me in. Is anybody home? 
That's a, that's a very famous picture, and it's kind of the concept of, that we have of evangelism. Won't you just please let Jesus in? This term obedience of faith has a different idea than that. This, this evangelism framework that we are familiar with makes sin out to be just a little more than a bunch of bad choices and makes faith out to be something that we finally get an understanding of something. I have faith, which in our contemporary evangelicalism uh, means that we start to see things more clearly. But what is clearly missing in this approach to evangelism is that is the understanding that sin is first and foremost um, rebellion against God and disobedience against his commands and that he commands us to repent of those things. That's what's missing in our contemporary understanding of evangelical uh, evangelism. Instead of trying to, to you know, persuade people to come to Jesus because it'll make their life so much better, maybe we ought to think about saying, God says repent. Turn from your sin. The gospel is a command. The implication of this, that when we share the gospel or preach the gospel, we must understand that we are not merely inviting our friends and family members to an experience to experience a fuller life, a happier life, a more meaningful life, even though that is part of the gospel, isn't it? It says so in John 10. Jesus said it himself. I have come that you might have life and have it to the what? Full. So that is part of the gospel, but we've left it there. We've forgotten to include that God is commanding them to turn from their sin, from their selfish lifestyle, from a lifestyle that is um, putting themselves as God instead of God as God. And that's the very thing that we're commanded to turn from. We are commanded to turn from our sin to God and obey Him. How do we obey God? By believing in the one He sent, by following the one He sent, by loving the one he sent, and by obeying the one he sent, who is Jesus Christ. That's obedience to God. And in case you're, you're not convinced of this yet, let's go with Scripture. This is what Paul preached when he preached the gospel. He didn't get up in front of the Athenians in Acts chapter 17 and say, hey, Jesus is a really nice guy. He will make your life a lot better than it is, so why don't you all come? You know, just say this prayer right here, bow down here before me and say this prayer, and, you know, your life will be a lot better. What did he say to the Athenians? The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. That doesn't sound like the gospel presentations that you hear today, does it? But that's the way the Apostle Paul presented the gospel. Paul also described the response that the Roman Christians had to the gospel. In Romans chapter 6, verse 17, he says this, But thanks be to God 
that you who were once slaves to sin became obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And then in Romans 10, Paul is describing those who do not respond to the gospel. Look what he says in Romans 10, verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. He's talking about the gospel. And then in verse 16 of the same chapter, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. The gospel is a command. Not only is it an offer of, of salvation from hell, from a full life, from meaning and purpose and forgiveness of sins, but first and foremost, it is a command to turn from sin. That's what the gospel is. Then at the end of this great letter to the Romans, he says this in, verse six, in chapter 16, verse 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. There's that phrase again. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. So that's the way the Apostle Paul saw the gospel. I believe that some of the weakness of our contemporary Christianity is linked to our deficiency of understanding sin and God's solution for our sin found in the gospel. You ever wonder why people don't respond to the gospel? I mean, why wouldn't you want to go to heaven? Why wouldn't you want to have your sins forgiven, live a life free of guilt? Why is that? Because we have forgotten the very bottom, basic, foundational truth of the gospel. And that is turning from sin. We don't really see the gospel as a command. We see it as an impotent offer of a better life. Man, I hope my, my friends respond to this. Man, I hope they see the need, their need for Jesus. Maybe instead of that, we should be praying, God, reveal their sin to them. Help them to see their sick sinness that they're wallowing in. When we fail to present the gospel as a command of God, we run the risk of minimizing sin, robbing God of his glory, and deluding someone into thinking that they're saved and on their way to heaven when actually they're without Christ or his benefits. So I just want to challenge you uh, in your thinking about sharing your faith. I think it's important to share the benefits of Christ. I think that's an important part of the gospel. But don't neglect what Paul preached so strongly. that our sins are in the way and we must deal with them if we expect to see God's grace and his mercy and forgiveness. One of the ways that I have been helped to understand the necessity of obedience um, in faith is to understand how we are saved. 
this, it's hard for us kind of to get our arms around this idea of the necessity of obedience and faith when we are saved by grace through faith, isn't it? It's hard to get a handle on that. But here's one way that has helped me, and I'm hoping that it'll help you. Um, if we understand how we are saved, we'll understand the connection between obedience and faith. The Reformers talked about this quite a bit, and they called it ordo salutis, which is the Latin term for the order of salvation. When you and I are saved, there is a progression or an order of events that takes place when you and I come to Christ. And I want to lay them out for you here. Now, there is some discussion among theologians as to the order of these events, um, but for the most part, the order is as follows. The first step in being saved is that we are elect. It's all over Scripture. You can't read Scripture without seeing that the saved are the elect. We even have New Testament books written to the elect. Ephesians 1.5 makes it very clear that we were chosen to be saved before the foundation of the world. So before any human being ever existed, the saved ones were elect. Now that's another concept that's hard to get our arms around. We're not going to talk about that today. Even though I know you'd like to. We're not going to do that. The second step in the, in the order of salvation is calling. Romans 8.30 talks about this. And a few weeks ago we talked about the general call and the specific call. The general call goes out to everybody. That Jesus said, come to me, those of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. That's a general call. But the call that is specific and that this is referring to, this order of salvation, is, is mentioned a couple times in the first seven verses that I read this morning. Did you see those? Look at it again. To all those, verse 7, who are loved by God and called to be saints. In verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. That's a step in the order of salvation. First, you're elect. Then, in time, when you come into existence, sometime during your life, you are called specifically by God to come into his family. And then, this next step in the order of salvation is regeneration. Then you are regenerated. And this is where the order of salvation becomes a discussion amongst theologians. And I'm of the opinion that steps three, four, and five are simultaneous. All right? Regeneration. 1 Peter 1.3, what does that mean? 1 Peter 1.3 explains it. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Spiritually speaking, God in regeneration takes our, out our heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. Takes us from death to life. Um, put your finger in that where you're at right now in Romans and then turn over to Ephesians with me 
if you wouldn't mind quickly. Um, I want to show you how regeneration is seen um, in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Keep your finger in Romans because we'll be back and forth, and also keep your finger in Ephesians because we'll be running around here a little bit. <clears throat> now remember, we're talking about the third step in the order of salvation, and I'm, I'm trying to explain to you the order of salvation and how that helps you understand obedience of faith, okay? So let's look at um, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And you were dead in, the tre- in your trespasses and sins, okay? That's before you knew Christ. You're dead. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is not work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now here's a great verse, and this is where regeneration happens. Look at verse 4. But God, man, talk about two of my favorite words in Scripture. But God, being rich in mercy because of of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's regeneration. God made you alive. You were dead. Spiritually speaking, you were unable to respond to the gospel. You didn't understand it was foolishness to you. But then because God called you and regenerated your heart, you understood the gospel and received the next step, which is faith. Which is a gift of God, Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it, speaking of faith, is a gift of God. Alright? So the fifth, the fourth step, rather, in the order of salvation is faith. The fifth step is justification. Justification. It's a, it's, justification is a declaration or a divine verdict. It's a legal declaration that you are no longer guilty. That's what justification means. And it says in Romans 3, 23 and 24, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You are no longer viewed by God as a sinner. Remember Ephesians 2? As children of wrath? That's done away with. You're justified. The blood of Christ is is credited to your account. And so now you're standing before God uh, is in perfection. The perfection of Christ. Now one that I did not put in here that is uh, part of the, the process of, or the order of salvation, um, is the word adoption. All right? We are, once we have been regenerated, have been given faith, have been justified, we are adopted into the family of God. It says so in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that's election, that we should be holy and blameless, that's sanctification. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. We are now no longer orphans, 
spiritual orphans. We belong to the family of God if you've been through these other steps or order of salvation. And then the sixth step of salvation, or the, the sixth order, is sanctification. Sanctification is a big word that simply means becoming Christ-like. All right? It's becoming sanctified, to be cleaned up. You look at Romans chapter 8, verse 20. In fact, let's turn there. Romans 8. And I want to read for you 28, or Romans 28, 29, and 30. By the way, we're done with Ephesians, so you can take your finger out of Ephesians. Um, verse 28 in Romans chapter 8 says, And we know, and I want, by the way, I want you to look at, at some of the order of salvation that you see in these two verses. This is where, by the way, where it started, the reform, reformers thinking about these things. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, election, he predestined to be conformed to the image. Conformed to the image of his son is what? Sanctification. Becoming Christ-like. Being conformed to Christ-likeness. All right? That we might be the first that, uh, of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. So the, the sixth step is sanctification. The seventh step, as you'll see here in verse 30, is glorification. Look at it again. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he what? Glorified. So you have a, an order of salvation that is important to understand so that you can understand how obedience fits into it, into the concept of faith. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, again, talks about the different phases or steps or orders of salvation. It says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Roman Catholics have for centuries argued that faith plus works equals justification. Um, some of you who have Catholic backgrounds can vouch for that. It's faith in Christ and God plus observing the sacraments, then justification. If you do these first two things, justification follows. Faith and works equals justification. But the reformers came along and said, wait a minute, what does Scripture say? It's always a good question to ask. What does the Bible say? I don't care what you say or what your favorite author says, what's the Bible say? And that's the question the reformers asked. What's the Bible say? And they said, that the Bible says it starts with faith. So if you were granted faith by God according to Ephesians chapter 2, you receive faith, the gift of faith, the result is justification and works. Do you see, you see that works is a part of the equation on both sides of, reforming, of the reformers and the Catholics? But the reformers takes away all human merit. Works are not a part of salvation except the result from being regenerated. So Catholics say faith plus works equals justification before God. And Homer says no, faith results in justification 
and works. Works are simply a fruit of truly being saved. That is what Paul says. That's what Jesus said. That's what the church fathers said for the most part, and the reformers and the Puritans. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. I have that for you here. It says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now here's where you get to the point of understanding how obedience and faith is connected. If Jesus, if God through Jesus Christ elected us before the foundation of the world, and he just promises us in Scripture, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that one day we'll be glorified, all those other steps of salvation or the order of salvation are a necessity. You see that? God will not elect you and then neglect to sanctify you. God saves you to the uttermost. You are saved completely, not just partially. Does that mean you'll be perfect? Absolutely not. Sanctification is a process. A process, by the way, that you will continue until the day you take your last breath. We're becoming like Christ. But he who elected us before we even existed and promised to glorify us when we die and stand before Christ also said that his will is for us to be sanctified. So part of the way that I, at least I understand how faith is connected to obedience is that it's all part of the way God saves me. I am saved through this process, and obedience is one of those steps. God is the one who's doing it. God is the one who's working in me to accomplish good works. It says so in Philippians 2, 2 and 13, 12 and 13. So this is a great, a great comfort for us who struggle with our inconsistency in our Christian life. It's a great comfort to us who fail from time to time uh, and sin like we shouldn't. So we need to be encouraged by this. But I also want to make sure you understand what Paul is saying when he says obedience of faith. Obedience is the essence of faith. It's part of it. It's part of the program. It's what God has called us to. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 It is God's will that you be sanctified. Let's pray.